Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy, but you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great, filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Bree, and Bree was married to a coercive controller. It's a story of financial abuse, isolation, infidelity, moving goalposts, post-separation abuse, and triangulation. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Bree. How are you? Hi, Brandon. I'm doing well. How are you? I am doing well, and thank you for being here with us today. And if you want to be a guest like Bree is today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And for today's episode, we do have a content warning in this episode because there is talk of uh, sexual abuse in this episode as a child, childhood sexual abuse as a child, and then later on there is sexual abuse as well in the marriage too. So there is the content warning for this episode. And today you are going to hear Bree's story. It is one of coercive control and also one of post-separation abuse. And the difference here today is that with most of the stories that we hear with post-separation abuse on our show, especially the ones that happen, you know, 10 years after the fact, usually they involve uh, children. In this case, Bree's story does not. We're just dealing with someone who refuses to let things go and they just need control and they and they need to win somehow. So a big thank you uh, to Bree for being here with us today. And now I'm going to get out of my way and your way. Bree, the floor is now yours. Hi, everyone. Um, thank you so much for having me on the show and uh, taking the time to hear my story. A lot of this happened quite a few years ago, and I just wanted to share what I'd gone through because in the aftermath, I realized that for me personally, hearing what other people went through um, helped me to recover because it helped me to realize, okay, I'm not crazy. This was a crazy situation with somebody who was not a good person and um 
So I, I hope that some of the things that we discuss and I share today can uh, be of benefit to the rest of you that are listening um, in your own journeys to recovery. So I guess we could start with uh, kindergarten. Uh, before I went to kindergarten, my mom was very stressed about me being able to hold my own in kindergarten. So she taught me to read. And in kindergarten, everyone else was learning the alphabet. And the teacher would make me sit down with all the kids who were learning the alphabet. And it was like, well, this isn't fair. I already put in the time and energy to learn the alphabet and how to read. I want to go look out the window. And so I would get in a lot of trouble in kindergarten because I didn't want to sit down and relearn the alphabet since I already knew it. Um, and finally, the teacher would always, she, she like hated me. Finally, uh, they let me take a, an advanced placement test. Um, this was like in the 90s. So they had these box computers that you had to go to. And so I went to one of these box computers, took a test. And they, the test showed that I was at this reading level. So every day when the kids in my class would start learning the alphabet and things like that, I would go to a different classroom with older kids and I would go to the reading box and I'd have to read until my teacher came back to get me. And so from, I, I don't know, from that age, I was kind of like already the idea of being like cut off from my community as like a normal thing, like not necessarily a bad thing. Like, I think that's where it came from. So when my ex wanted me in, um, but in Italy, staying by myself, studying things by myself, I kind of, I tied it back to that as being like a, an advanced placement good thing like good things will come from this and I didn't look at it how I should have which is he's isolating me from my friends and family and so that he can manipulate me and control me in ways that are not healthy so when it comes to your family and how you were treated within your family, did you inherit certain belief systems from them growing up? Did you have any trauma or anything like that? And what I guess what was the rest of your childhood like? And did you aspire to be something when you were younger or were you someone who was um, didn't know what they wanted to do? I, I do have um, a, a relative who has borderline personality disorder in a traditional family she would have been a primary caregiver in our family we had so many people helping to run the the house that we didn't have as much direct time together but i did grow up in an environment where i would be expected to be um she her attachment style is anxious avoidant so i would be expected to be fully present fully involved and then at the drop of a hat I was expected to just disappear and not say anything not need anything uh, just go to my room be quiet be left alone she did have a friend who was a pedophile who um took a an interest in me when I was eight um and started his abuse when I was nine and he would tell me that his parent or that my parents knew what he was doing and that he was doing it because um I was a bad kid and I had misbehaved and he spoke with my mother about how he would be helping her to discipline me 
but he didn't clarify what that discipline was. So I thought she knew what he was doing. And it wasn't until middle school when you have medical education, the science classes that I actually knew, okay, this is not normal. This is not appropriate. And I talked to my mom about it. And she said, I will never forget. I was like so nervous when I was telling her. And she said that I was wrong and it wasn't, I wasn't abused in this way. And I must be thinking about things that happened to somebody else. And I realized at that point that I would never get help with that at home. And I started documenting the abuse in journals in the form of sketches because she would read my journal, but she wouldn't look at my sketchbook. So I started drawing sketches of what the, the, how the pedophile would abuse me. And I saved those so that I could bring them out when I left the house, when I got out and could talk to adults who could actually help with that. So I think that I did not accurately understand the chessboard that I was born onto, uh, being in the family that I was born into until, I don't know, decades afterwards. Friendship-wise, I'd always have at least like one very, very close friend that I did everything with, that I confided in, that I knew I could trust. Other than that, I would kind of keep everyone else at a distance, at an arm's length, because I had this idea that if they if they got too close, they might not actually like me and they might, I, I might, like, with my caregiver, she would say that she was feeling suffocated if we were with her too much. So I kind of took that belief system into other relationships and I would always try to give people space um, and only see them, like, if I liked them, I'd only hang out with them once a week or twice a week so they'd have space to do other things. So the belief system was a little bit strange. Um, we grew up in New York City. My parents loved, um, we grew up in a, a mansion. I, I kept trying to skirt around this. I can't really. Uh, my my parents used to have lots of events there. And so we'd have people from all over the, the world. When they'd come into New York City for a speaking engagement or something, they'd end up doing some sort of gala, nonprofit gala or dinner or some sort of event at our house. So it was a very international, eclectic house. Um, and with that, uh, my parents were very open to like Catholicism, Pentecostal. Uh, they were open to Buddhism, um, Judaism. What else? Uh, it was everything, everything. Growing up in our house was very fun. There was always an adventure, but there was no, you never felt like you were standing on concrete. You felt like you were always standing on moving slabs and you kind of were just expected to, based on whoever was in the house, whatever my parents were interested in lately, you were expected to adapt and smile and be a, like a happy child in the public image. Meanwhile, behind closed doors, you were kind of like, what's going on? I don't get to ask questions. I just am supposed to smile and nod and go along with all of this. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. So when it came to relationships and dating growing up, did you have any relationship beliefs while you were growing up? Were you allowed to date or did you have any dating experience at all? My parents were very strict with my dating life until my senior year of high school. Um, When I went to college, a lot of friends gave me advice saying, don't date your freshman year. You're starting to figure out who you are within a new space and a new environment. So I didn't um, by sophomore year, I kind of tried dating a few people. It didn't really work out. Um, I was very clumsy in the dating world. It was very naive. Uh, and then when I was a child, my favorite, uh, story was the story of Esther. And so my parents would use, use that story to kind of prime me with this idea that they would pick who I was going to marry and it would be beneficial to the family. So when my junior year of college came around and I hadn't really connected with anybody that I would consider like marriage material, my parents decided, oh, we screwed up by not letting her date. Let's over, let's correct that by introducing her to someone and suggesting that this is the person that she should date with the intention of marriage. Um, so at my, what my parents did is they invited me to we had a gala at the house and they had me fly up from school. I was at school in Florida. Um, they had me fly up to meet this guy that they thought was the one I should consider dating with the intention of marriage. The way he presented himself to my family was very different from who he was internally. And I didn't come to know all of the intricacies of that and all of the layers of that metaphorical onion. Um, until years later. And some of it I still, I, I didn't understand until years after we got divorced. Um, we, uh, so I was studying medicinal and biological chemistry and he was studying chemical engineering. And he said one of the first things that he liked about me, he saw the photo when he came to it, my parents had a barbecue at the house and him and some of his friends went to it. When he, when they were doing a tour of the house, he saw in my room photos of me, but he also saw the uh, analytical chemistry books. And he was like, oh, no way. She has the same textbooks as me. So claimed that the first thing he liked was my intellect. But later I found out that he actually didn't want me to use my intellect for anything. He just wanted that to be sort of like a badge that he got to brag about. Okay, so a week after we met, um, he asked my father for permission to date me with the intention of marriage. My dad said yes. Um, and then he called me and told me that he had said yes. And then he asked me, like, what I thought of everything. I was like, yeah, sure. Why not? Like, I figured, okay, courtship is not formal. I can break it off. Worst comes worse. So literally one week after the courtship, after he asked my father for permission to date me with the intention of marriage, um, he goes to some event and he's making out with a girl in the back of, of 
a van at the tailgate of this sporting event. And he tells me it. And I was like, well, then clearly you don't take us seriously because you wouldn't do that otherwise. And he was like, no, it was peer pressure, this, that, and the other thing. And he blamed it on external circumstances. In December, he officially asked me to be his girlfriend. I said yes. And then a week later, he was at another party with some friends and they all were sleeping at the lake house and he ended up sleeping in the same bed as girls. And so to me, this was like, okay, he's very insecure. This is another red flag. This is kind of like strike two. I asked my family and professors what they thought of this. And they said, well, nobody loves you more than he does. It was an immature mistake. Um, but hindsight is twenty twenty, And so years later, they were like, oh, well, you saw the red flags. Why didn't you do anything? And at the time, I was so naive when it came to dating. I was like, okay, maybe this was just another slip up and it won't happen again. Um, but it actually was him setting the stage for a repetitive pattern that was there throughout our, our relationship. So when it comes to this person... Who are they in the sense of what they want to portray to you and what they want the world to see them as? And how do they view themselves? When he first met my father, he said he was interested in one day being a congressman or a senator. And he needed um, to marry somebody who knew how to entertain local and foreign politicians and whatnot and knew how to network and based on how i grew up in the mansion with the galas and the networking events and all these foreign guests coming in my parents were like oh this is a perfect obvious match and i think they were so focused on that and that false image that he had laid out that they didn't look at all the cracks in that false image and they didn't take, they were so excited by this idea that they didn't stop to question if who he currently was aligned with who he claimed he was going to be. He was, his mother was married and divorced uh, five times. And I always thought like, okay, this is not like a great idea because he's not going to know how to be married. And my parents were like, no, we, we, he's very open to learning and to mentorship and we're going to teach him. But they didn't really have a great marriage either. They were both building these goals, two ships passing in the night. They always posed for the per picture perfect postcard. But behind closed doors, they were running around pursuing different goals. Anyways, he grew up with his mother having been married and divorced five times. We did talk about it later in our marriage about how he always felt inadequate because his love for her wasn't enough and she was always going for she always needed the love of a spouse and he and he felt inadequate when she kept replacing him with different men um and he did share some of the more traumatizing experiences such as like she would bring him he was nine years old and she would bring him with her to bars where she would go to meet men um and one time she uh after having intimate relations with one of her ex-spouses, she came in to like give him a hug and say hi to him. And he was like, don't touch me. Like you just finished having sex. I don't want you anywhere. That's gross. And it was not like a great 
mother-son relationship. His father was radio talk show host or something. And by the time I met him, he was a homeless drug addict. So again, not a great role model. Yeah, he, uh, he, his grandfather was very successful and he was the one who was very active at uh, pushing my ex to go to military school for high school, to get into a good, uh, to get into West Point, um, to make something of himself. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. From the courting process to when cracks start to show, I guess, how long is that period and what are you seeing uh, in both instances? He was night and day different before and after we got married. Completely different. Um, And I asked him and he admitted, he agreed to this, that he viewed being married as a check box on a list and not a commitment to be active participant in when we got married he just stopped caring about me stopped caring he said when we were dating uh i never want to stop dating my wife um it's like getting your phd you start with the dating period is just elementary school the engagement period is like middle school the first five years of marriage are like high school but you should never stop learning about your spouse. And obviously that ends up not being true or truthful as actions here are not matching words, especially in in the long run. But uh, to continue your story, after you are married, you briefly live in the United States before the both of you get stationed in Italy. And more of an isolation can obviously happen there because you are now overseas. So when does the abuse begin while you are there? And what are some of the things that are going on? The first week, literally as soon as we got back from the honeymoon, he was locking me in the apartment. Um, And then what he would do is he would take two steps forward with his abuse. He would be held accountable for it and he'd take one step back. An example, he's, I found emails he, where he would give me like a three paragraph explanation of why my brother or my father or my sister, someone in my family could not come to visit us when we were living in Italy. And then I'd find, I found an email just like Uh, A couple weeks later where he said, hey, I wanted to let you know I'm going to let these five couch surfers, which are like gorgeous German girls, um, stay with us for a couple weeks. Having my attention wasn't enough. He needed the attention of every woman. He would invite me to go to the bar with his friends. He would sit me at one end of the table and then he would walk around the bar and talk to all the beautiful women in there. And then if one of his friends came up to talk to me, he'd run over and say, no, what are you doing? Don't talk to her. She doesn't want to be, she just wants to be left alone. And I was like, well, no, I don't. And I don't understand why you have me sitting at the bar so I can watch you flirt with all these women. Like that's just not acceptable behavior. When we first moved to Italy, 
And it was very common in his career line for the wives to network together. And he specifically asked that I not uh, interact with any of the wives of his uh, coworkers, which was very, I thought it was very strange until the first day he went to work when he locked me in the apartment for, it was like 16 hours. And I had only a pound of bacon, a box of blueberries, uh, and a pound of, uh, a box of spinach in the fridge. That was it. And when he came home, he apologized, said it was a grueling day. He didn't expect it to be that long. It wouldn't happen again. But it happened again every workday for the next two weeks. So here is a moment where you were locked in your apartment because this specific apartment, the doors locked behind you and there's no latch on the other side of the door for it not to happen. And you were given no extra key. You weren't allowed to have one. And he also takes the car to work too, which is now further isolating you. And you don't have a cell phone, but you are able to use your home phone. And this is where you call your parents about what is going on, just to kind of figure out, if, is this thing normal? So what happens from here? After two weeks, I called my parents. They were shocked to hear how he was treating me because he had presented and promised to them something very different from what he was doing. So they offered to fly me home to stay with them for the summer. When I told my ex, when I told him that they, that I was going to go home and stay with my family for the summer because it was obvious he was not ready to be married. Um, he scoffed and said, how are you going to get there? I'm not, I'm not paying for your flight. And I very calmly and matter-of-factly told him, you don't have to. I told them that you've been locking me in the apartment for 12 to 16 hours a day, every day for the past two weeks uh, while you're at work. And they offered to fly me home. And his face went white because I think he had this idea that he could just treat me like some like an electronic that he put away in a closet when he didn't need it and he did not expect to be treated like held accountable for that so eventually you do get a new apartment after you tell him about this phone call with your parents and you are now surrounded by more things to go out and do and you and you do end up getting a key and you have a little bit more freedom here, but we still do have a history here of actions not matching words. You have isolation that is occurring. And when, you know, there could be a a secret being let out here about how you're being treated, he does conform back to the other way because you do have a channel at least of talking to someone at this time and that kind of forces them out of isolating you but there's also form of economic abuse financial abuse that's starting here so are you recognizing these things as abuse right here or are you just saying like these things aren't adding up at this point i i wasn't calling it abuse i just thought he has no idea how to be married he doesn't he's not ready to be married um and maybe he's regretting us getting married like he doesn't want to be married. He wants to be a bachelor. So when when he moved us to the new apartment and he stocked the fridge, I took that as, oh, he's finally figuring it out what it means to be married. He's ready to be married. He's going to put in the effort. I didn't realize that 
that was just like a fake correction and it would go back to abuse. I, I didn't realize that this would be cyclical. I thought this was like a one-time thing. I, I was a new person, a foreign country, um, and my ex was able to control the situation very heavily. Um, I was spending all day, every day, by myself in this apartment. And I obviously was like, okay, to pass, I have a degree, I'm educated, I want to get a job. And he snapped at me and he said, why on earth would you want a job? And I was like, well, I need to boost my credit score. I'm sitting alone by myself all day, every day. It's boring. It's like, might as well do something useful, this, that, and the other thing. And then the only thing he heard there was credit score. And he said, why do you need a credit score? Are you trying to leave me? And I was like, that is just so not a normal reaction. Like, of course, both parties in a marriage should have good credit scores. Like, that's just, that is something that I feel like my parents did right with teaching us that. And it was such a strange response. Like, in hindsight, I realized he was consistently fearful of me leaving him because he knew how bad he was treating me compared to what he should be doing. So here I am. He won't let me get a job. Um, the only freedom I had was to walk around in the beautiful fall weather. And I had no winter clothing, no winter coat, no winter shoes, nothing. Finally, and I, I talked to him about it. It was cold, one of winter clothing. And he said, no, how are you going to pay for it? Um, I realized, okay, he expects my parents to consistently be paying for my expenses because he doesn't want me to get a job and he doesn't want to pay for it. Well, the commander of the base ended up hearing about the fact that I was riding my bike to and from the grocery store because he wouldn't give me the car. Um, he wouldn't give me the car to run errands and he wouldn't buy me winter clothes. So I was literally biking to and from the grocery store in freezing, like in the freezing pouring rain in summer attire. So when he was confronted about that, he bought me a winter coat and it wasn't a real winter coat. It was a windbreaker that was really cheap that looked like a winter coat so that he could pretend he had bought me a winter coat. Um, too many people were still asking questions because all I had was summer clothes and this winter coat. And then he finally bought me, I think it was like five pairs of clothing, like three shirts and what, whatever, just a, a small amount of winter clothing just to check the box. So coercive control has taken hold. That is a little bit easier to see in some ways from my perspective. Obviously, when you're in this, it's very hard to see at all because you're knee deep in it. But based upon the background in which you came from, where you came from a wealthier background and you're used to certain things in your life kind of growing up, here now, you are at the opposite end of a, of a spectrum for you. You know, you, you have no phone. You have your freedoms are being taken away from you. You don't have any money. Uh, your clothes, you know, you don't have proper clothing to wear. You, you Right now, it's like two different worlds from where you came from to where you are now. So are you recognizing that at this point and that something is wrong? Because other people are recognizing now that something is not necessarily wrong, but like, hey, this person needs to be uh, given 
proper clothing, at least, you know, within that community? I think you just hit the nail on the head with that. I think that a lot of his abuses and controls, I didn't see them as abuse or control because I thought, well, I grew up in a very privileged environment with parents who were financially well off and successful. And this is what life is like when you're starting out building your own life uh, at, in your early 20s. So I, I didn't know what of it was abuse and what of it was just we're not living on my parents' salary. We're living on a starting your career salary type thing. Um, and it was interesting because in the beginning, he framed me not working as like a good thing for me. And then it became this thing where I realized it was just another isolation tactic. So eventually your husband gets briefly redeployed and this gives you an opportunity to get a job without him being there to oversee your day to day. So walk us through this. Yes. So he made so many rules for when he is deployed. A lot of a lot of the wives whose husbands were at this rank, if they didn't have a uh, a job on the military base, uh, working in an admin office or something, they flew back home and they got some sort of interim job just to pass the time productively while their husband was deployed. Uh, some wives, their husbands let them travel. They had kids, so they traveled around and had fun with that. Uh, but everyone was kind of doing things. So I I was trying to figure out, okay, which category should I fit into? He was livid when I suggested that I go home and maybe get a job at home. Um, and then he was still vehemently against me getting a job on the base. And his argument this time was that he could not handle, he said there aren't enough women on the base and he could not handle the sight of one of his colleagues hitting on me when I went to, to work in an admin job on the base. And it's like, okay, just that's not that tragic. Like he made it seem like such a tragic, huge deal. And it's not okay. Somebody flirts with you, you brush them off, you walk away, go on with your work day. Um, so, and then he, the third category, which is the wives who were having fun and traveling, he said he didn't want me to travel or experience any new things or new countries without him. So I was kind of just left there. But the one thing he did promise is that he would buy me a dog. And he finally bought one um, right before he deployed. We went to pick one out. And then um, I was able to pick her up in uh at the end of august so a few months after he deployed i was able to get her and he i thought it was a gift but i really should have seen that it was a trojan horse because having a puppy forced me to live at home like i couldn't travel without him um so what i thought was a gift was also yet again another control tactic so i got the puppy and i'm sitting home the one day like in between training the dog and i went online and saw that there was a job opening on the base uh, managing sales for Apple um, on the military base. And I was like, oh, you know what? This is like, there's such a low chance I'll get it, but let me just apply and see what happens. And because of an internship I'd done in college, working with a few U.S. corporations, I, I was the one that was picked. And when he found out I had this job, he would try to say that we needed that money for all sorts of things. And then when I wanted to do something fun, he would say, we don't have the money for it. 
So he was trying to find ways to control my income. Once he found out about the job, he was trying to find ways to control it while he was deployed. Just exhausting. Um, he also tried to go around me and have my paycheck directly deposited into his account. And fortunately, I was informed of this and he was not able to do it. But I was just at that point, I was like, he's insane. He's absolutely insane. Like he's trying to go around me as if this is like the 1910, 1920s and like control my paycheck. Oh, he asked me to put that money into savings accounts. He had these savings accounts that he refused to put my name on. His mom was his co-signer. Uh, his mom was the beneficiary. I I had nothing to do with them. And he wanted me to put my paycheck into those savings accounts. Um, and I, I refused. I said, I will do it if you put my name on the account. And he refused. So that was that was that. So eventually you working becomes the norm and all of the money you are making, he's trying to control it. And as if he's allowed to hide his money and all of your money should be going to the household. And when you try to challenge this, it really gets nowhere and all you're getting is rage from him. And then there's even an incident where he pockets $12,000 from an insurance claim loss when most of your stuff is the stuff that is being claimed. And with all that stuff happening, you two are still trying to figure out your relationship and you both agree to go on a trip together, one in which he actually wouldn't even pay for. You paid for everything. And this is where you find out that he has been cheating. So walk us through this. Oh, my God. Yeah. To this day, I remember I was sitting in an orange hoodie and my chest was pounding so hard that my hoodie was vibrating as I was staring at the laptop at the nude photos that he had sent to his mistress. Um, but back up to how I found out about that. So he had logged on to his, his email on my computer and Gmail is set up. So whichever account, Gmail account is logged into first, that's the one that automatically opens. So I was going to, to check some things his email popped up and there was a subject line that said information about the trip. And I thought, oh my gosh, he's adding something to the trip to surprise me. Like, this is so exciting. Um, and I was like, okay, plan the trip. I'm going to be a good wife. I'm going to print out the map so that we know how to get there. And when I clicked on it, it was a cryptic email about a trick that didn't go well. And I looked at the name of the sender and I was confused because she was writing as if she like knew my ex very well, but he'd never mentioned her to me. So I typed her name to the search bar like, OK, I'll get more context. 186 emails containing love letters and nude photos. Um, my my heart was pounding and I read like the final few and I was just so confused. So I started at the beginning. The first photo was from her. It said, remember me? And it was a nude photo of her. Then I thought his response was going to be something like, no, thank you. I'm married. So I like smugly went to click on his response and my heart just dropped because his response was nude photos that he had sent to me saying they were only for me. And he had sent them to her as well. I saved screenshots and PDFs of everything. And then I put them into a, a file and I sent that file to five friends to save on their computers because at this point, like, 
he was abusive. I realized he was abusive. The The goggles were coming off. All of the excuses I gave him, everything was opening. And I thought he might try to, uh, he might try to destroy the evidence. He might try to hurt me. I want this documented so that if anything happens, people know the truth. So I also put it onto three separate hard drives. I had a friend who worked in military intelligence. I went and I gave him one of the hard drives and I said, if anything happens to me, I want you to open this hard drive and look at what's on it. And he looked at me seriously and he was our neighbor. So he kind of knew that we didn't exactly have a healthy relationship. He was like, okay. And he took the hard drive. And then um, I went into my ex's office and I said, do you know what's on here? He's like, no. It was like 186 PDFs and screenshots of every love letter you exchanged between you and your mistress. And his face went white. And I told him um, that I wanted to get divorced. And we were walking to the lawyer's office on our way to the lawyer's office. Walking over there, he said, I don't want to get divorced. I'll do anything. What do you want? At this point, you watched so many movies in Hollywood where there's that turning point where the bad person turns good. Um, and so I kind of thought it was maybe one of those moments and I really should have seen that it was no, just another loop in our cycle of abuse, more like a hurricane. You just keep going up these loops. So on the way to the, the lawyer's office, I told him everything I wanted and he said he would do it. So we were given this piece of paper, um, to fill out prior to meeting with the lawyer. And when we met with the advisor, she looked at the letter and she said, she looked at me and she said, I'm going to be honest with you. Um, and then she looked at him and she said, if you were really married, if you were really married to her, she wouldn't need to put any of this in writing. You would just want to do these things for her. And then she said to me, she's like, I'm supposed to advise you on why you should not get divorced. But looking at this list, I can tell you that you don't have a marriage. I was shocked because so many people have been saying like so pro me staying in this marriage and then i finally had somebody who was looking at the cold hard facts saying this isn't a marriage um so she nodded to her assistant and her assistant walked us directly into the lawyer the office of the lawyer who's responsible for drafting divorce documents and he yeah he started drafting everything from there so you end up going on a pre-divorce trip with a friend you made whose husband was also cheating on her. So what happens on this trip? We called it the uh, divorce celebration road trip. Um, we both brought our dogs. We decided we would just like have fun just without our exes. And we were going to just drop all the drama from our minds for, for this trip. So two days into the trip, um, my friend met one of the bodyguards of the and she convinced him to join us on the trip. Um, it was funny because she was on the trip to meet people and to maybe meet someone and just have like a rebound relationship. And I was on the trip swearing off men for the rest of my life. Um, and she said to him, oh, my friend here is Jewish. He'll be in good company because this guy was very Jewish and just not going to even flirt with this girl that he decided was obviously not Jewish. And he looked at me and I had my Star of David necklace on. I pulled it up and showed it to him. And then I put it back under, tucked it back because we were in certain parts of the world. You don't want to be so loud about your religion. So I tucked it back under my shirt and I went back to reading this book on uh, my iPad. So 
she, so he, he decides that we're an okay group to travel with and he starts talking to her. We pack up the next day. Um, we're, we're getting ready to go. And I spent, I don't know, the next day and a half barely speaking to this guy. Like, I, I can't believe my friend adopted someone and is bringing him on our divorce celebration road trip. Um, she decided it was a good idea because he had bodyguard experience. So he should be a safe companion to travel with. Um, so we arrived in Amsterdam and I'm straight edge and it, it uh, my friend is not. And the gentleman we brought along with us, he also turned out to be straight edge because he had regular testings at work. So we bonded over our united and unique goal of finding the best Jewish food in Amsterdam. This unique trip that I thought was going to be swearing about, about swearing off men, it turned out to be like exactly what I needed. Over the previous day and a half, when I had been avoiding our new guest, he had heard enough from conversations with people calling me about what was going on and this and that, and the other thing. So he kind of, he knew what I'd recently been through. And so what was interesting is he had three married sisters, um, older sisters who were all married. And so he had a lot of insight into the inner workings of like healthy marriages. I don't know. It was, it was very healing just hearing somebody who's he's grown up with seeing healthy marriages, both his parents and those of his sisters. Uh, it was very healing just hearing him say, you're not crazy. Yes, this is abuse. Um, and just developing, I don't know, a, a unique relationship with someone who kind of just pulled me out of that hurricane. Anyway, so he pointed out that I didn't need to wait for like a post-divorce asset distribution before moving on because um, as a Jew, I could make Aliyah and start over in Israel. So we spent a lot of time um, speaking about that and what life looks like for people who do that. Um, and by the time I got back from the trip, I felt like I was ready and that's what I was going to do. I had my plan. I already had a new friend over there and his uh, his sisters and his mother were all welcoming. So I, I, I felt like I had enough of a community over there that I could go to and make Alia and not feel so alone and isolated yet again. And for those who are listening uh, that don't understand what Alia is, uh, any Jewish person around the world can go to Israel. And what's the program? A, a one-year program? It, so what you do is... You go through um, a language course, you learn Hebrew, and then they look at your past work experience and they help you to find a career. They also give you a small allowance and housing until you get on your feet. So you are thinking of doing Aliyah and you have this idea of Israel and starting brand new. But then your husband starts to throw wrenches into everything. So walk us through this. I came back. I'm ready to leave, ready to move on. I'm moving to a different country. I'm not going to be isolated. I already have friends. Um, and my ex told me that they could not process our divorce request because under Italian law, we would need to be separated for three years prior to a divorce being granted. Later, I found out that this was a lie. Um, and he didn't want to sign the documents because the lawyer drafted an agreement that would entitle me to half 
of everything, all the money that my ex had been hiding away in four retirement accounts and savings accounts during our marriage. Um, when we got divorced in the U.S., he had already squirreled that money different places. And so he claimed that he had none of it by the time we got divorced years later in the U.S. So I told him, um, sorry, I was just telling you what ended up happening in the end. Now let's go back to the, what actually happened now. So I told him that I'd met someone and I was moving on and he threatened to kill him if I did not give him one more chance. So obviously I was incentivized by this coercion um, to give him one more chance. So once you two are back together, things really shift from you not being allowed to work to you working to now you being expected to be the breadwinner. So tell us how all of this came about. To facilitate my ex's affair while he was deployed, he had to use a helicopter to get from the base that he was stationed on to that of his mistress. Um. And when commanding officers found out about his misuse of military equipment in a war zone, he was flagged for dishonorable discharge from the military. Um, to this day, everybody who knows what he did in order to switch that to honorable discharge, they won't tell me what he did. They just have this disgusted look and they say that he did very sketchy things in order to get that. So he ended up in the end having an honorable discharge. But back to the the whole point here is he spent the next few weeks talking about how I had ruined his career, not his affair, me. I had ruined his career. And if I had not made his affair known, his career would not be in jeopardy. So because of this, he decided that the best course of action would be for me to become the breadwinner. And this would start with me going to business school. So here we are. After the holiday rush at the end of 2013, I stepped down from my role managing the, the sale, the Apple sales, and I began studying for the business school entrance exams. I told my ex that if I were to do this, I wanted to do a JD MBA in the US. And he went absolutely nuclear on me until I agreed that I would only apply to business schools that he approved of, all of which were based in Europe. So trouble arose when it came to pay for business school because he had made, he was so adamant about me not having a credit score that I didn't have a credit score. Uh, so nobody would give me a, a loan when I wanted to, to apply for one. And he blamed it on my family members. Instead of taking ownership for the fact that he fought to, for me to not have a credit score, he blamed it on other people again. Um, he finally found an institution that granted him a business school loan. And he did some sketchy things in order to get it set up so that he could take out the loan and I would not co-sign it. And none of us know to this day, like how he got it. We just know that he did. So when I asked if I could co-sign the loan to establish a credit score, he said the loan company did not want my name anywhere near the student loan, which we all know is not accurate because student loans are used to establish credit scores in the U.S. So again, he wants me to be the breadwinner, but he doesn't want me to have a credit score. He just he was at war with himself, wanting control, but also wanting to have a wife who was self-sufficient. And it was 
it was exhausting being being stuck inside of that war. So you're going through this exhausting minefield. He's cycling through these different control moving goalposts. Uh, is he verbally abusing you or is he putting you down at these times too to try and keep you down or off balance so you start to question yourself? Oh my gosh, he would always insult my intelligence. Or he'd say, you don't know how the world works because somebody would ask something about my childhood. And if I dared to mention an au pair or a housekeeper, he would say, you realize how you come off when you say that? People are just disgusted by you. And yeah, I, he would he would do these things to try to make me embarrassed of coming from a good family that where my parents worked hard and were financially well off. And that took me a long time to realize it wasn't something to be ashamed of. Anyways, um, so in the fall of 2014, uh, I took a 23-hour car ride to Spain. Um, my ex helped me to set up my apartment um, before I be be began my courses. Um, the last night of his visit was me having the eye-opening revelation that I would die if I stayed with him because he sexually abused me so badly that I was in pain for almost two weeks. It was 10 days. Um, and this was the final wake-up call. I realized that he would never stop and I would never survive if I stayed with him. I realized that if I had kids with him, they would grow up watching their mother not only be be abused in every single way. Um, and I, I realized that that was it. That was, I, I would not survive staying married to this person. I, this is when I realized that the abuse was an addiction for him. The control was an addiction for him. And it was insatiable. And nothing would ever be enough. No amount of compromise, no amount of sacrifice on my part would ever be enough. Rather than let me move on, and uh, I told that I needed the divorce paper signed. I told him that, look, I'd given him a second chance. He blew it. Um, and that he had crossed the line he could never uncross. And uh, rather than letting me just move on in peace, he proceeded to tell every one of our friends in Italy that I had asked for a divorce because I wanted to be a business school slut. And some were blind enough to believe him. And that really hurt because I was the victim over and over and over again. And he made sure that I walked away with the mud on my face when he was the one that put it there. Yeah, but... I mean, at the time I was a silent victim. I just wanted to be silent about it. I wanted to move on. I didn't want to uh, have to deal with it. Um, I thought if I was silent, he would let me move on. And then years later, I mean, we're, here we are more than a decade later. Night, yeah. He, he still is not letting me move on. Like he still keeps trying to come after me as if I'm a victim that he should be entitled to control. So before we get to that, you eventually go through the divorce process, which turns out to be very long. So I guess walk us through this. So our divorce was very long and drawn out. Um, I found out later that he did this on purpose because it gave him the time he needed to hide every asset he had, that we had accumulated or he had accumulated during our marriage. He would brag that he was living in hotels eating every meal out and spending his weekend using his accumulated points to stay at Marriott's in exotic locations like Mexico. Um, and then the next minute, he'd claim that he was living on a friend's couch 
eating nothing more than protein shakes. And he was so poor because he was trapped under the debt that we had accrued mutually during the divorce. And he was claiming it was all mine. So he had taken all the assets, hidden them, kept all the debt. And then he said that he was paying it off. And it was my fault that he was living a poverty life. He wanted to keep mutual false narratives all existing at the same time. He did a lot of unethical things throughout our marriage, throughout our divorce, throughout our separation. Um, and facts about this were peppered all over the web uh, in just social media posts where I didn't realize I was showcasing his abuse and I thought I was showcasing something he did forgetful. And I realized later, no, this is abuse. So he asked, um, each time he found another piece of evidence of his abuse, he would contact me about it, ask that it be taken down. And what he said is the girls that he was dating would find these posts and bios and photos, and then they'd break up with him. So he felt that I was to blame for his inability to maintain a relationship. And he went so far to, as to threaten me saying if this was preventing him from moving on, and if I didn't let him move on, he would find ways to prevent me from moving on too. So Again, he's not taking ownership for being a bad boyfriend. He's claiming that it's my fault that he's uh, having all these these relationship problems. So being a total idiot um, and just wanting to keep the peace, I started to speak well of him in public, thinking, okay, he'll let me move on. What I didn't realize is he then said, see, she's speaking well of me because I didn't abuse her, but she abused me and he would make up things. And in this case, you are being used in two different ways. One, he is triangulating you with these other people, and you're this person who's now his vouch that he's a good person if he's trying to get someone into a, an abusive relationship. And then at the same time, you know, you are still being abused and controlled. Uh, yeah. in this situation. So it's like a double-edged sword that is is going on here. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, my gosh, I, I I so appreciate the time we had to talk about this and break it down even further because I thought like after reading all these books, I understood all the intricacies of like the abuse and the triangulation and everything. But like just talking with you, I've continued to realize like even more spots where I was abused or misused and I didn't even see it as that. So when it comes to post-separation abuse, earlier you mentioned that you took out a student loan, but it was really him taking out a student loan, which he wouldn't let you co-sign. It was that iffy loan where you really had no idea how he got it or where he got it from, and you were paying him money to pay off that loan. And this this loan becomes a big issue in post-separation, which he starts to use as a form of control and hold it over your head. So what happens with this? So he, when we were still married, he took out the loan for business school. Um, he would never tell me how much was left on the loan or how much I paid. And I have multiple emails where I kept asking him for this information. And like a loan shark, you would just send me random random texts and emails demanding money. And then later, he'd send texts denying having ever received those payments. Um, he'd ask for like $4,000 out of the blue, claiming that he needed it to pay rent um, for the next month. And then he'd forget he'd said that. And he'd send me photos of him on his ski trip in Vail, Colorado. 
Um, and then a, an older relative who's very intelligent, she pointed out that it was clear that he planned to hold the fraudulently acquired student loan over me as a control mechanism until I died. Um, at one point, he decided that this level of manipulation and control was no longer enough. It was no longer giving him the high that he once got from it. So he decided to try to go after a company that I built years after we had gotten divorced. Um, yeah, so in, in the winter of 2022, I was served papers. Uh, and he had spent all of these years creating fake evidence. Like there was a fake email that literally had fraudulent information in it, and he claimed it was evidence. Um, and he was using this to paint me as an abuser. And because I had spent all that time trying to placate him and talk like amicably and peacefully about him, he felt emboldened enough to act to to come at me again. So now you are here still dealing with all of this. You know, you've you're divorced though, and you've started, you know, a new life with someone else. So, you know, how are you feeling about everything? You know, obviously you're still in it when you thought, you, you know, why am I still in this still? But he's still around and causing problems. So how has your healing process been while that's still going on? Yeah, so I think one of the best things I've learned is that people are at war with themselves everywhere. You see people every day on the street, they're at war with themselves, they're at war with something going on with someone else. And sometimes they want to pull others into their personal war. They want to pull others into the hurricane that they have going on in their mind. And one of the best things that you can do for yourself is stop the war you have going on in your mind. And then stop allowing yourself to be pulled into the war that other people have going on in their mind. For example, I had someone the other day, we were in a business meeting and he kept trying to disagree with me. And finally I said, you keep looking for reasons to disagree with me. Stop doing that. And he laughed because he realized that's what he was doing. And he was like, well, I'm just concerned about, and I was like, you're talking to me about me managing something. If you can't trust me to manage that, I don't need to be in this meeting anymore because this is a waste of time for me. And just drawing that, that firm boundary was able to bring our meeting in a completely different direction. So as much as I'm still trapped in this current final battle with him, um, I have learned so much about how to just draw boundaries with others who are trying to see if they can test pulling me into their own hurricane of abuse. I, I, would, I would say that one of the best decisions I've made is making a promise to myself that every single month I read one book either on um, uh, on some sort of like self-help book on how to be the best version of yourself mentally and be fully there with the people who value you and how to identify and avoid and be a bad target for people who would try to pull you into the hurricane and pull you down. And if you had any words of wisdom for everyone listening, what would they be? If you have had the unfortunate experience of being in a relationship with an abuser, the first thing I'd say is listen to episodes on this podcast. Listen to the stories of other people because 
by listening to the stories of other people, you'll realize abusers bank on you thinking that you're crazy and you're the problem. And uh, resources like this, they, they help you to realize you're not the problem. You're not crazy. There is somebody else out there who is. Um, do not negotiate. What was the saying? The saying on the base in Italy was always, do not negotiate with terrorists. Um, but I would say that applies here too. Do not negotiate with an abuser. No, this is the boundary. And if you don't, if you're not okay with this boundary, and if you're not okay with this, then you can move on. Well, Bree, I really want to thank you for being our guest today, sharing your story, showing coercive control. You know, this person still isn't leaving you alone. And some abusers, you know, they want to win at all costs and they can do things in any way. And they're always reaching into a bag of tricks to try and do it. And he's just still so hyper focused on you, which is unfortunate, but it's a reality of so many people. And I know that you validated that for so many people today. And I can't thank you enough for being here, sharing your story and helping change someone's life. So a big thank you for being here. Thank you for hosting it, and thank you. Well, thank you once again, Bree, for being here with us today. And if you want to be a guest like Bree was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. And there you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button. And please do send it in the format that we ask for. And if you are someone that needs support, we here at Narcissist Apocalypse have a support group. So at NarcissistApocalypse.com, top of the page, there is a button that says support group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. And inside, you'll see that we have Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Thursday afternoons, and Saturday nights. We also have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need from survivors just like you. It is a wonderful group of people on there. And you can share your experiences and make friends as well. So if you need support, join our support group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at DomesticShelters.org. At DomesticShelters.org, they have articles and resources to help you make sense of what you're dealing with. They have every phone number and email address and web address for shelters and agencies, no matter how big or small the town you are in. DomesticShelters.org has it there. It is a wonderful free resource and a wonderful organization. So if you need extra support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. And we also have a new friend to the show, and they are Shelter Movers, and Shelter Movers can be reached at sheltermovers.com. And Shelter Movers helps survivors of domestic violence transition to a better and safer life. It is a volunteer organization, a donor-supported charitable organization as well. And what they do is they help coordinate moves for people who are getting out of domestic violence. They help you to safety, and they get all of your things out of your home and into storage, all of your belongings into storage and they can do this for your pets and livestock too it is a wonderful organization so if you need help from them or just want to donate to them please go to sheltermovers.com they are currently only available in canada but they are looking to expand into the united states eventually and that is it for today's episode so for myself and brie we hope you have a good night